Friday lunchtime lectures at the Open Data Institute. Welcome everyone to the ODI. My name is Anna Scott. I'm the editor here and I'm delighted to welcome Callum Murray for our first ODI Fridays of the year. Callum's from uh, Amicus, who's a former ODI startup, and we'll be talking about uh, machine learning and its potential impacts for the banking sector. Um, The hashtag for today will be ODI Fridays. If you'd like to join the conversation online, please do so using the hashtag. If you're here for banking, you're going to be disappointed, (laughs) but I can assure you we're going to go legal. So I'm Callum, uh, founder of Amicus. Uh, We work with data to enable change and improve outcomes in the legal sector. Innovation moves quickly. It waits for no one, but perhaps a little bit in the legal world. Uh, Lawyers in the legal system have in the past been accused of using a 19th century process with 20th century technology to try and solve 21st century problems. Uh, The law is really hard, so is innovation, and also working with the data that underpins the potential change that we can enable um, if we get this right. So currently, this is a bit of how our judiciary might appear to someone looking in from the outside. Um, Who are the people? How is the law made? And how does it get delivered? What's the process at the moment? You're a career-long solicitor, perhaps. Uh, You get voted in in your white and male. Unfortunately, I, I do fall into the white and male category but there's not really much I can do about that. Um, Ultimately today, I'm going to talk about how legal technologies can help law firms respond to the changing environment, um, risk and complexity in the legal sector, as well as the changes necessary to really realise the potential of the technology that already exists. Um, And in turn, I will also answer who's going to run the law, woman, woman or machine. So as a, a young solicitor trainee, you might well have had grand uh, expectations of leather-bound books and the smell of rich mahogany, but actually what high court days in, uh, in court doesn't often happen. It's more, more so long nights in front of a laptop uh, doing discovery work and lots of paper court bundles. Um, but things are, are really changing for legal service delivery um, and the role of the solicitor is becoming commoditized, productized, offshored and increasingly data-driven. But with uh, data and digitization comes further considerations of governance, security and risk, the double-edged data sword. Law firms are dealing with increasing amounts of digital information whilst meeting the ever higher legislative standards that do then govern the information. The fourth edition of anti-money laundering regulation comes into force this year across the UK with a fifth implementation coming closely behind it, looking at tackling counter-terrorism, financing measures, trust structures, and further beneficial ownership disclosure. Uh, Law firms are going to face heavy penalties through the GDPR regime um, if they fail to meet their data privacy, security, and transparency obligations. Sanctions can reach into the 100 millions based on a 4% annual worldwide turnover. Uh, Frank Maher, in this area, partner at Legal Risk, who handle insurance-based legal claims, um, they find that an example of the increased burden in data protection has seen a deluge of cyber attacks on law firms, which provide a daily test of their compliance 
and protecting the personal data of their clients and indeed their clients' clients. And they've seen a, a massive growth in the use of financial sanctions. Um, in addition to that, geopolitical events leading to cross-border sanctions and the instance of Russia and the Crimea um, or unforeseen changes indeed to international agreements like Britain's exit from the EU. They're all leading to an increasingly complex environment in which compliance becomes its own risk and law firms must turn to legal technology to improve their efficiency and accountability from Palm Oil all the way to Panama. At a recent Law Society Anti-Money Laundering Conference, Donald Toon, Director of the Economic Crime Command at the National Crime Agency, said that the legal sector currently represents around 1% of suspicious activity reporting, arguably perhaps a bit on the low side. Um, and similarly, Risk Advisory Group CEO Bill Waite believes that soon making use of legal technologies and linked data will be the only way for larger firms to manage thousands of third-party relationships in a coherent and consistent way. So, to remain internationally competitive, British law firms will need to make the use of new skills and greater diversity within the workforce, open up traditional leadership and decision-making processes to embrace new technology opportunities and, crucially, reinvent how legal data is handled, accessed and shared throughout the legal process, whether on or offline. Nearly 40% of compliance professionals say that people with the right knowledge of the business would make the biggest difference to their existing compliance teams and the ability to protect the business over the next year, but only 30% believe that the new talent coming to the industry has what it takes to succeed. So new skills are required and as legal uh, sector technologies begins to consume more and more data, it becomes an increasingly important role to plug the gap in the firm's capacities. There are now more female solicitors than male, according to the latest statistics from the Law Society of Scotland, closely followed by 47% of a balance in England and Wales, 33% of which are now making up partner level. So the demographic of the legal workforce is slowly becoming more diverse, but still has a long way to go to include a wide range of backgrounds, career paths, and decision makers that's going to be necessary to create the kind of cultural change within the legal sector that's needed to embrace new ways of engaging with the law through legal technology. Most law firms aren't quite ready for the move online to have digital repositories with evidence, judgments and case law still being carted around the country and CD-ROM with CCTV, VHS tapes and crates of paper and too many digital ways of engaging um, relying on people scanning pieces of paper. But change is already happening. And you may have noted the recent work by UCL in London. Some computer scientists developed a program to weigh up legal uh, evidence and moral questions around uh, European Court of Human Rights decisions. Uh, another example would be the Dutch Legal Aid Board having adapted a system with origins in eBay to resolve dispute or divorce settlements. And in New York, you can now request an online hearing to contest minor offences and then get the judge's decision by email. So in addition to the, the efficiency and re reduction of risk and law firms saving money, I think much more importantly, the access and the, the availability of data can increasingly um, allow for citizens and small businesses to gain access to legal information. 
uh, with one in three people in the UK finding professional legal advice unaffordable um, and a disadvantage compounded by recent cuts to the legal reform uh, or legal aid bill. In addition, small companies in England and Wales were found to lose over an 11 billion a year in unresolved business disputes with some recent uh, research from the Federation of Small Businesses. Technology and open data have the ability to empower people. Um, machine learning applications powered with open legal data can therefore facilitate basic information gathering, triage, speed up the legal process and provide alternatives so many more disputes can be settled out of court, whether through negotiation or mediated approaches. The big opportunity that we have um, is based upon the people engaged in this area at the moment. So our current Lord Chancellor, Liz Truss, has a really strong track record for making data-driven decisions and creating value from data from her previous work in a role with DEFRA. Uh, Richard Heaton, the current Permanent Secretary at the MOJ, um, is also himself a passionate supporter of making legislation more effective and accessible with his Good Law Initiative was launched in 2013. Um, in the UK, we also have the benefit of our legislation uh, being published openly online through legislation.gov, thanks to the pioneering work of both John Sheridan and Jerry Tennyson. Uh, in a recent report from the Lord Chancellor, Lord Chief Justice and Senior President of Tribunals, uh, they set out uh, £1 billion worth of a spending programme that would see all cases start online, and in some cases, completed entirely online. Uh, the Lord Chief Justice of England and Wales, a few weeks back, speculated that in a speech to the lawyers in Wales that intelligent systems would soon become better than QCs at predicting the outcome of cases, I would caveat that it's not going to be a five minute job um, and let's do a discovery alpha beta before we start talking about that. I think that's a little bit further down the line but certainly interesting to have someone of that level engaged with the discussion. Across Europe, uh, the argument that data financed by public should be available to the public, is also rapidly taking hold. Last year, EU science ministers agreed to make all publicly funded scientific papers published in Europe to be free to access by 2020. That's going to force the academic publishing sector to plan for changes in their paper-read business model. But needless to say, the decision was more popular amongst universities and researchers than it was the publishers. Um, this is going to allow, for example, academics in developing countries who can't afford high fees to European research or enable private citizens to, to check the latest findings on a particular medical treatment for free, something that I'm sure that Aaron Swartz would have been happy to hear. So the idea of innovation and, and open innovation um, isn't a new one. Um, the idea that um, illegal data infrastructure would likewise provide equal access to legal information, court listings, judgments and case law. The principles of government as a platform and the creation of central registers is one, is one source of truth isn't new um, and it's now very much more applicable in how we can move forward with publishing the data. The idea of commercial entity having control over publicly um, accessible or partially publicly accessible information seems to be quite unusual that if it, it belongs within one corporation it can then lead, lead to some further issues. The model that um, I just mentioned with registers um, is in existence through 
some of the work that Companies House have been doing and also GDS um, within government. So the idea and the, the concepts are already around and it's how we can then apply these to legal service or open legal information. So the issues in, in diversity, this taken from Broadchurch as an example, um, greater diversity could potentially open up decision making so that the legal technology can be tested and rolled out at speed, at pace and scale. Um, but the future diversity has a more important role um, and a more vital role, meaning the difference between perhaps guilty and not guilty, with an algorithm only being as good as the training da data sets and its parameters. Uh, the Guardi I recently reported that civil liberty groups complained and the computer-based forecasting tools, which use data to predict future crimes, rely on flawed statistics and can exacerbate racially biased and harmful policing practices. Certainly not something that you would want to roll out as we go forward, but the creation of more and more data, um, understanding where that information sits and who has access, um, similarly whether that should be available for everyone as opposed to a proprietary uh, learning-based system. Um, the increasing volumes of the public data held within the systems um, in that context may, may well make it quite literally criminal. So what could the legal sector look like uh, mid-century? The percentage of female judges in England and Wales has increased to 28% last year, but still one of the lowest proportions of female judges in Europe. Still there's hope there could be a gender balance judiciary in around 2040 by which point we can expect open data and machine learning to have changed the legal sector considerably. In some areas, women will be in the majority, hopefully making a legal system more representative. These female solicitors will be engaged in niche, high-value work, whilst the rest, um, the admin and compliance, is outsourced to broadening intelligent systems. So, women could, could very well run the law, but technology is going to be there to enable part of the process. So the next question would be, what, what happens next? Like what, how can we move forward? Um, the way I see is creating enough political and judicial will to allow the build of an open API to publish the increasing amounts of legal information as open data uh, so that anyone can build services on top with enough oversight to ensure the solutions are compatible and interoperable. This would mean the government and judiciary will have to take back ownership of both court data and legal information from legacy agreements based around IP and consider how new data will be published and made accessible. Um, there's proposals for an online court system and that really closely marries into what's going to happen next. If you build the shiny thing, you need to make sure the data infrastructure that sits beneath it is really strong. Let's get that right first before we build a system that's going to publish huge amounts of data with not very clear understanding of who's going to have ownership over it, who's going to have access. And doing the hard work to make it easy has already begun. Um, GDS, uh, based within government's digital uh, system, um, they've been mapping out the silos of data that exist around the justice system. Um, and also within the Ministry of Justice Digitech teams, they've been looking at the ideas and principles around open data and how well that could relate to future systems that are built. 
And I'll be happy to take anyone's questions. Uh, my name is Lena. My background is in uh, criminology, uh, systems, compliance and legal. I was recently looking at a um, doing a PhD in relation to how we should um, actually reduce the prison population as an end goal and through the assessment of um, legal decisions. And it seems to me that uh, there are two, two really important questions here in relation to that and I'd be interested to hear your feedback on that because a lot of that is opaque to me at this stage because I haven't gone into it yet. But I have spoken to High Court judges on this. The question is, do we want to be fair to the individual or do we want to reduce prison populations? Uh, because in relation to, you can have a situation where you're actually coming from, uh, a, de a decision about a particular person can actually be important to them based on their background, whether it be social or, you know, racial or, or gender or something like that. It can actually, the, the outcome of whether or not they're going to be a repeat offender or do well under those things can actually be influenced by that background. But it does mean that from other people's point of view, that decision is unfair because that decision may differ for me than it does for you because we have back different backgrounds and we appear to be a different gender. Um, so I'm assuming there. <laughs> so I think it's a really interesting question of how you want to use the data I think the f focus on the people making the decisions in terms of that, because of the, the, the in relation to judges, there's a, sorry to be covering so much, but um, the people making the decisions, uh, they've recently found that if you, it's one of those studies really, isn't it? But um, that female doctors, if you're a if you're a patient of a female doctor, you tend to survive. You've got a three to four percent better survival rate, and the the assessment was based on the fact that the female doctors are supposed to be better listeners and they're supposed to follow the guidelines and everything like that. And the view on that was that there are similarities with that with judges and whether or not... So I'd be interested in the, 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 what, um, the benefit, whether there has been shown to be a benefit to having female ju judges because there's not much point if you've got um, female judges and then they've got a very high recidivist rate or things like yeah. that. So, you know, do they actually Im improve the decision process because, or do we... Yeah. Um, so I, I, so I, I think that there, there are some really important questions with data, but the thing is that there are, there are really important ethical questions at the, 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 the centre of those, and I'd be interested in your take as opposed to the individual as opposed to the societal ones, yeah. to wrap it back to the start. So I'll try and break it to, to answer two questions. The first one uh, being around the segregation or how data is used on a wholesale level or an individual level, how that would be decided. And then secondly, whether there's been any evidence to show that having diversity in the judiciary is a good thing in relation to machine learning. Um, in the first instance, um, we're really aware of the ethical uh, dilemmas. There are lots that are thrown up. We um, built a, an MVP, like an initial prototype based on consumer law, and looked at how you could help someone through a problem based on legislation, and then from legislation.gov, and then link that back to case law. And even in, in designing that as a system, there were ethical things that were brought up. 
and we did it in part with uh, some computing science uh, departments at university. So uh, there are huge ethical dilemmas even for us to go off to develop and build our own system. And I think those dilemmas and issues are best served with the judiciary or someone else making those decisions around what should happen, what framework should be in place to try and prevent biases and put some checks and balances in place. The, sometimes biases are what actually informs the outcome. There, it, it, there is this, this implicit assumption that biases aren't useful or that that, 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 that thing, but the, I think that they should, and I'm not saying that they are or they're not, but I, 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 I'd just like to um, question the assumption that biases are always negative. Yeah. Um, so that 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 you know, have have we done that? We've we've got so many evolutionary cognitive biases. It's and and, and it, it, the the assumption is always that they're a negative thing. But you know, are are, are there benefits within those? Yeah. So uh, in our, in the context of the work that we are doing, it's more at making sure we don't build biases into a system that's going to learn and build those biases and they get stronger and stronger over time. So as soon as someone arrives to a complaint with, oh, I live in this postcode, we don't want the system to be, you know, erring someone down the track of, oh, we know that you might have an outcome that would look like this and here's the kind of circumstances that will relate. So we are, we are trying to be really clear that with all the data being open and accessible for both the judiciary and the system to come up with a set of rules and saying, you know, how closely can, should we map it? We'll kind of be judged by them, but I would agree that some biases are, you know, there are going to be inbuilt. You won't remove everything. <laughs> so I've got a question. Uh, I've got no background in law, but I'm, but I, I'm doing a lot, a lot of work looking at digital technologies transforming healthcare. And when it comes to opening up data, so for example, in the case of surgeons, as a profession, of, of some of them have protested, like, why are you opening up the data about, you know, mortality rates rather than outcomes data? Because then it, it's going to show these individual differences, and so it may inf impact um, their future within the profession. But then other people are saying we need that as we need to understand, the, you know, where there are uh, variances. How can, can we explain them? What's going wrong? You know, is the legal profession uh, is there the same kind of cultural barriers to that change when it comes to trying to get more of this data open, would you? Yeah, I would say three different levels. Uh, one, um, in the judiciary, to go back to a sheriff or a judge and say, you know, these are all these cases, they've taken 12 months in your court, they take four months in another court, and you set a benchmark to say, let's improve efficiency, then, you know, that court clerk or that judge isn't particularly going to be happy about that. Um, so that was one thing that we did come up against. That was one example or use case that we looked at to say, let's just improve the course. Let's not try and take anything away from the current processes. Let's just tell them about the process now and why someone wouldn't want to do that. Like, why doesn't someone engage to go to court for litigation that's going to take 18 months or five years or whatever? Um, the second is internally within the law firms to uh, set up a system for a law firm and say, okay, you feed in all your contracts and we're going to pick out the key terms and then we're going to be able to tell you what you should be looking at and what looks to be fine. So doing that, some of that kind of discovery piece. Um, but then you've got two clients, so it could be two PLCs and the law firm acts for them both, but they want the efficient outcomes based on the, the training data that they've got but they don't want the data to be shared. So 
you've got this kind of mishmash between the law firm has um, rights amongst, like they'll have Chinese walls built or they'll have issues internally to separate um, crossover problems with data leaking to one to another. But the, the client wants, I'd say, a more efficient or cost-effective outcome, which will mean let's use all the firm's data across all the partners who've experienced this. Um, so that, that was a second issue around um, how will it actually work in practice. Um, and then the third issue being the, the courts, um, it's almost so far off at the moment that it's not, um, it might have been floated in discussion, but um, strategies exist and there's a discussion around let's build the system, but not, it's not got to that kind of granular level. And certainly we would be engaged when the MOG will do something, we'll go along to a hackathon or we'll talk to them, but um, the idea would be everyone kind of feed into that. Great, any more questions? I think there's an elephant in the room here. <laughs> the elephant in the room is long-term storage. Now, the House of Parliament has records going back a thousand years. If we go back to the pyramids, we've got two, three, four thousand years. Yet we all know computer data is ephemeral. So chances of anything, any data set that's being established now lasting for more than 50 years is, is very small. So in the, we have the legal idea of precedence in law, in, in British common law, this concept will disappear. There will be no pre There will be no data. For 50 years' time, for the current current data will just be irrelevant, or or corrupted, or subjected to ransomware. So, you know, I don't know where we're going to go. Yeah, I, I think ransomware, mal data could well be a huge issue. Um, and again, if if there's one source of truth, and that's the do the government have their own system, whether that's backed up and separated or they've got a paper copy um, it's such a huge and like vast area of issues that are going to come up um, but it doesn't get away from the point that at the moment the system's broken for so many people and how can it be improved um, what, what would your take be as to whether we should stay with paper do you think or like, yeah. stay with stone <laughs> <laughs> that's what the pyramids tell us yeah yeah any more questions? You've, Glenn Jones, you've focused quite a bit about um, the use of open legislation data and, and things for helping individuals and individual companies. Have you looked at all about the benefits of having that information in that form for helping with wide-scale changes to the legal environment? Um, I'm thinking of two things, neither of which I particularly want to see, but one is exiting the European Union, and there is a potential in the future that we might um, do away with the monarchy. You know, that sort of um, change which affects will affect huge amounts of legislation. Have you looked at how your approach to handling legislative data can help with that at all? We haven't considered Brexit as a, an area to kind of pile in and focus on. Um, well, at the moment, we don't know exactly what's going to happen. It's a really interesting area that, you know, if you could provide a, a use case to say, you know, give us all this great repeal bill and we can do something with it, would be really interesting. I think at the stage we're at at the moment, we're really focused on real life use cases and small examples to show to the uh, judiciary and the MOJ that this can be done. Um, here's a really small step that you could do, say for instance, give us access to all the court listings, which are currently go to a, a private company and if you want to get them, you can pay or you can go to your local court building and pull the piece of paper from the wall. So 
what we're focused on at the moment is on a much smaller level. Like we can, you can build the system and you can have the computing science that exists and the technology exists, but even access to small data sets that would be really valuable and useful for someone who might have a case calling and they want to double check they're in the right place, they're going to the right building, uh, is their barrister there? Like basic, really basic things. Um, that's what we're focused on at the minute as a side to the, the compliance, regulation, money laundering. That's one thing and one product. And then secondary is what can we do? Like how can we open up more information that exists that say Westlaw or LexisNexis have that's behind the paywall? It shouldn't really be behind the paywall. It should be available for people to innovate with and work with. So that's more what we're focused on. But I think the potential is huge if and uh, you know it's not just us. There are dozens, if not hundreds, of uh, people focused on machine learning in the legal sector, all doing slightly different things and building slightly different products. But I think the potential to bring everyone together around the idea of here's all the data, go and build some stuff that's going to solve some problems. I think that's really what we're focused on at the minute. Um, hi. Um, I was wondering, are you going to look at all at any sort of preventative stuff um, or maybe like influencing policy? For example, looking at countries where there's low levels of crime or they're closing jails, like the Netherlands or is it Norway? I'm not sure. Um, seeing if you can assess what makes people less likely to commit crime in the first place? Yeah, um, looking at preventative measures is something that the Ministry of Justice have on their agenda as well. Um, the hackathon I mentioned they ran about six months ago and one of the streams was based on norms data, which is based in prisons, and looking at reoffender rates based on if someone had been assaulted in prison, um, it, what likelihood did that therefore mean they were going to reoffend or were they going to get into a spiral of drug use which is going to lead into further issues in their life. So. Uh, preventing and, and reducing uh, reoffending rates is something that the Ministry of Justice want to look at. Like we don't have the data to do it. Um, at the moment, we're focused on civil, um, so we're looking at um, more kind of consumer and business-oriented stuff because it's easier. There's less ethical questions around it, but I think there's a huge potential to go right into that area in lots of different countries as well. And the access to the information varies, like on a national level. So some countries do publish a lot and it, is, it would be available. Um, the other thing we're looking at is once we've built out this initial proof of concept, whether it's based in England and Wales or somewhere else, is then transplanting that and saying, okay, let's put in a local data set based on local issues and help people in an area where the governments and the judiciary are open to innovation and there's actually not as many barriers to go into somewhere in a developing country to say, here's how we can really help. We can reduce cost and we can like reduce reoffending rates. We can improve all these areas and um, it just takes all these discussions so <laughs> it takes so long and um, so at the moment again I think it's a really good idea you could like there's so many possibilities but ultimately you have to have the willing of the judiciary or the justice system in that country and if they want to do it and they want to invite you over you, you could do it it would be possible none of the, the technology like behind all of this was invented in the 50s like mm -hmm. it's been around like no one in the computing science departments at unis are particularly excited or run around talking about AI that's not groundbreaking like well I, I, you know I'm giving my, my view uh, it's not groundbreaking obviously it is groundbreaking like it's amazing the developments that are going on but it's really the data that sits behind this and the important bit um, and you can do so much stuff when you get access to it yeah yeah thanks 
Any more questions? Um, I have a couple from ODI Leads. Uh, the first is, what's the best innovation you've seen in this really interesting work? The best innovation I've seen? Um, I wonder in what context. Um, let's say the best innovation I've seen uh, would be probably in the States. Um, they've, they've taken a big step forward. That the Harvard Law Library has now been digitised. Um, it's been done in a slightly strange way that a startup backed by VC have put in five million or eight million dollars. They own the data until I think another eight years, and then it's public. So they've they've now digitised, or they're in the process of scanning everything in and digitising it. So they are doing it, but they've gone about it in an unusual way. But it shows you a model that could be recreated. So if they, you know, a justice system said this is good, but we don't have the budget. Should one startup or one data publisher have it for a an amount of time? I, I don't know. It might it would get it out in the, the long term, but the concern is that if one or another data publisher have access to it all and no one else does, then they're going to build proprietary systems that, that over that eight years or that ten years, they develop their intelligence and systems to a point that it's going to be really difficult to compare and catch up. Then is that data publisher going to own? all the outcomes and they're going to litigate more efficiently than everyone else because they've got the black box. Um, but I think the American example is a good one. Okay, great, thanks. Um, and the second, I think you've covered this a bit already, but you might have something to add. How will what you're working on affect the legal profession in the short and medium term? Um, in the short term, we're, we're more looking at trying to help. We're not trying to remove solicitors. We're not trying to say, don't go to a court. I think you should have the option to do both. Um, so in the short term, we're trying to assist and engage to say, this is happening, it's happening here, it's happening in the States over Europe. You need to engage with it and think about how you're going to change your model. Um, is billing by the hour still going to exist? Um, so that's on the kind of law firm side. And then on the other side, um, in the kind of medium term, we've been working with some legal charities to talk about how they can be more efficient. They've got limited budgets and could we run a triage system for you know, nine out of ten cases that could be helped and just assisted that they wouldn't have to put so much resources into. And then longer term, what we're looking at is actually having this online system which would help people whether they go to court or not. So you could get some outcomes, look at the chance of success, looking at your on your basis of your information that you would feed us in, which we can analyse. And we can then put you in touch with a, whether it's a mediator or, you know, you're going to go to arbitration and do that online. Um, or you might just want to pre-populate your court documents and just go straight to court. So we want to just make the system much more efficient and then people can do with the system what they want. Um, but ultimately a lot of it lies with can we get the data to do the analysis. Um, what we built based on our MVP of uh, consumer legislation, the blocker was the data. So it wasn't could we build the system to be efficient enough, it was more the training data set isn't big enough and language processing needs a huge volume of data to actually look at nuances and pick out areas that are going to be effective. Um, so that's the kind of longer term issue is the data side. Any more questions? Um, you mentioned earlier the need for organisations uh, in the sector who are working on machine learning applications in different ways to come together. Is that happening yet or is it something you're, you're trying to do? Do you have a call to action for anyone who could do that, do you think? 
at the moment it, it tends to be uh, company by company. Everyone's building their own black box or their kind of little bit of data. And it's the same like you go into Facebook, you your stuff's contained there, or you go into YouTube and all your stuff's on YouTube. So these kind of walled gardens of data is the kind of way it is at the minute. Um, but our approach is more, we're going to open source everything we do anyway, so we've got clever people who are working on it. Let's all work together and work with the government and judiciary to actually get one source of truth and have one place where all the data is not with two or three different data publishers or whether it's IBM, Intel or Microsoft or whoever's building their own system. It would be strange and unusual to have these, you know, one system here works really well for one area and then if you want legal advice then you go to the IBM one or you go somewhere else. Our idea is more, let's just rally around the idea that this all can be fixed, but if we all work together and do it as a one it's going to be better than having competing services which are all okay, but you're never going to have like a single place that you can go to get the real idea of what's going on. Um, it doesn't exist yet, but there is a momentum building in kind of legal tech. Like there's hundreds of startups across London, uh, predominantly in the UK, uh, who are all looking at different areas of the law. Um, whether it's like online crowd justice, they do you know online crowdsourced campaigns. Um, there's loads of others that you'll find a lawyer. There's different pieces of the puzzle getting looked at. Um, I would imagine in the coming years they'll consolidate and people will get together and say, okay. How can we really help fix the problem? And if we've got one voice to go and do it, it's going to be more efficient. And so is standard setting an aspect of that too? Definitely. Um, we can come around standards and say this, is, this would be a good way to move forward. Um, in the mix though, you've got VC. Um, so a lot of people, the funding source is going to dictate what they do. Um, certainly we've got our own pressures as well from investment. So they'll say, you know, you need to go off and generate revenue and we can't be looking at the data issue all the time. So. There's, there are kind of pressures that affect each different person in different areas and ways, whether they're government funded, whether they're funded from a VC. So there are different pressures affecting how it will move, but it would be good to get a set of standards that everyone can kind of rally around and say, here's the source of data, go and do what you want. Great, thank you. Well, unless there are any other questions, which I can't see there being, um, please join me in thanking Callum. Next week, we have a lecture on whether or not banks can keep up with fintech, so that might be interesting. Uh, it's not online yet, but it will be shortly if you want to know more. Okay, thank you very much. You've been listening to a Friday lunchtime lecture brought to you by the Open Data Institute. <laughs>